This is Still Standing with Michael Caputo, episode 56. Coming up on today's show, Pam Bondi's presentation and John Bolton. Did he do it or didn't he? No talking points, no spin. It's politics you can't put down. This is Still Standing with Michael Caputo. I'm Michael. If this is your first time listening, and I really appreciate it. If you're a return listener, I appreciate you even more. Not that I don't appreciate you other people. You're great. But if you're returning, you're greater. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, to me, I think with a lot of people in this era of podcasts and Fox News segments and CNN panels and things. I'm actually shocked uh, that I'm here in front of a microphone uh, recording a podcast that thousands of people are going to listen to. And I'm really pleased that it's grown into the thousands. I'm, uh, I'm very happy about that. I'm humbled by it. You know, I've always been in this politics game and, and I've been on talk radio now for several years. Um, uh, but on the media side of things, uh, you know, the, let's say cable news appearances, you know, press conferences, all that stuff. I've actually been on the PR side of it. I've been training people how to do those things, training CEOs and politicians how to sit and do an interview with Anderson Cooper or training them how to do a talk radio show with a national show. Uh, and uh, and now I'm, you know, it's like the, that old saying, uh, those who can't do teach. I was teaching it for 30 years. I remember when I was young, I was teaching a general, uh, a uh, uh, the commanding general of the 25th Infantry Division, how to do a radio interview. Uh, and uh, I, I think I was 20 years old I was teaching him. And, uh, and nowadays, I'm on the other side of it. I really appreciate it. It actually took me a little while uh, to take my own advice and how to do things. And uh, now that I've done my own documentary film and I've written my first book, um, you know, I'm learning what I, you know, what I don't know. Uh, and I always want to be the guy who knows what he doesn't know, uh, because if you don't, if I don't know, I want to learn. And that's why I really appreciate the comments from people. If you uh, send in an email, you know, you can sign up for a, uh, an update from as to when I uh, uh, post these podcasts at stillstandingpodcast.com. That's stillstandingpodcast.com. You can sign up for an email there. Uh, it'll automatically send out one when you when I post a new one. I'm back to doing them weekly. Uh, it's only been my second week in a row. <laughs> so all you critics out there who say, Caputo, get off your fat butt and record a podcast, this one's for you. Uh, but it's been really actually very difficult uh, for me uh, doing this film and the book. It's really grinding work in addition to still taking care of the clients that I have uh, in public relations. Uh, so I've been busy. I, I will be at this on a weekly basis. And, you know, here we are in the midst of the president's impeachment trial in the Senate, the Senate removal trial, whatever you want to call it. And the president has been impeached by the House, and now the trial to remove him is happening in the Senate. And I've watched some of it. I actually probably compared to most Americans, I've watched a lot of it. Uh, I find it 
dreadfully boring, especially the Democrat side, as I would. Uh, I think a lot of Democrats find the Republican side probably boring. Uh, But I I caught something yesterday, which a lot of people did, and that was Pam Bondi's presentation on Hunter Biden and Burisma. Uh, I know Pam Bondi. She may not recall me, but I know her. I met her a few times in Florida politics. Uh, I've been involved in statewide Florida politics for a lot of years. Uh, Pam is a hero in conservative politics in Florida. Um, She has her detractors. I am not one of them. I find her to be, uh, I think the future of the Republican Party lies in the hands of women like Pam Bondi and, you know, many others. Um, I think that she's a tremendous asset to the president's team, and I'm glad they put her out there to make the Burisma-Biden connection. Now, I, you know, I've watched the other lawyers present. Uh, people on the left were raving about uh, Adam Schiff's presentation. I'll bet, you know, if I had never seen Adam Schiff before, I might have liked his presentation. I can't stand hearing his voice. You know, I've had to, I was interrogated by him during the Russia hoax. And, of course, I met him in green rooms at CNN because he's a consistent, uh, uh, appear, a, a consistent commentator there. And uh, never had to appear with him. He always appears by himself. That's what they do with the bigger wigs in the room. I'm usually on a panel or sometimes by myself, but mostly on a panel. I can't bear to listen to Schiff. I can't hear his voice without my you know, recoiling. I think there's a lot of Republicans like that. I know every single one of us who was caught up in his bogus Russia collusion narrative. He cost me tens of thousands of dollars himself personally. cost me tens of thousands of dollars. Um, and I don't like the man. I never will like him. I, I will never want to listen to him. But I understand uh, that uh, from the left that uh, friends of mine who you know are Trump haters, and I still have a few left, they they like Schiff's presentation. Good for him. Uh, what I did notice is that he was repeating himself over and over. He basically gave the same speech several times in a row. It's like putting your uh, your uh, your old album on repeat. You know, with the arm would lift at the end and come back and set back down on the beginning of the of the LP again and start the whole entire album side again. That that's what it seemed to be to me. Uh, the real contrast was Saturday when the Republicans presented in a couple of hours and then they were out. I think that they understood, first of all, that nobody was watching on a Saturday, but also they understand that brevity sometimes is good, that people ty- are, are tired of the droning. But then comes Pam Bondi on Monday. And, uh, of course, also uh, uh, Alan uh, Dershowitz, who I enjoy listening to all the time, Uh, One of my clients is very close with him. I've had the pleasure of meeting him. Alan is a brilliant man. I don't agree with him all the time, but his presentation at the uh, Senate yesterday was tremendous. Um, But Pam Bondi. So Pam is talking about a topic that I know a bit about. You know, I've lived in the former Soviet Union for 10 years. I worked and lived in Ukraine. I married my wife from Ukraine. I met her there. Um, I travel there. I visit family there. We have family there. I'm very close with my brother-in-law who's there. My mother-in-law and father-in-law are very dear to me. So I pay very close attention to Ukraine, which is why I made the, the film, the documentary film, The Ukraine Hoax, which you can see again on OAN, One American News, on Saturday night and Sunday night. It's a one-part film. 
but it's repeated Saturday night and Sunday night at 10 p.m. Eastern time on OAN, the Ukraine hoax. While I was doing that film, I realized there was far too much information and I wrote the book uh, to accompany it, the Ukraine hoax. And if the film is, let's say, 9,000 words, the book is 55,000 words. There's a lot more information there. There is so much information to this and I am absolutely certain that Pam Bondi, when she was putting this all together to present live in front of the Senate, in front of the entire nation, she got the same feeling I did. There is far too much information here for one presentation to the Senate. It's like there's far too much information here for one, you know, for a, a 50 minute TV documentary. Uh, I started digging into it and and I'm sitting there, oh, you know, I hope, you know, Pam Bondi goes into this. I hope she goes into that. She didn't. She kind of, kind of, you know, flew over the top of it, gave a 30,000 foot view of things. She talked about the corruption of Hunter Biden being hired by Burisma Energy at an exorbitant rate of pay that made him approximately $5 million across five years, probably more like four, four and a half million, um, that he was put on that board, even though he had no expertise in oil and gas. He joined the board with his friend, Devin Archer, who also had no expertise, but he had connections to the Kerry family. Kerry at the time was secretary of state. Biden's father, Joe, was vice president. And they joined right after the, the murders on Maidan in February 2014. Why do I bring up the Maidan massacre? Um, that's because everything started there. The corruption has been around in Ukraine for many years. And let's not forget that Hillary Clinton, as secretary of state, uh, delivered billions and billions of dollars in aid to Ukraine and then took millions and millions of dollars in donations from Ukraine into the Clinton Foundation. Now, that's, of course, dirty as it comes. Uh, she tried to pretend that it was nothing to be concerned about at all. That foundation had no, upwards of a billion dollars in donations from places like Ukraine that had benefited from her work as Secretary of State. You want to tell me that that was completely unrelated, that, that Ukraine was just inspired to, to, to donate, you know, whatever it was. I think it was upwards of half a, I think it was like 50 million bucks. I got to have to look that up. But it was a tremendous amount of money. To be the number one nation donor to the Clinton Foundation when you're competing with Arab countries who are real thankful for her largesse. You, you, you got to believe uh, that it was really outside the budget of Ukraine to give that much money to Hillary Clinton. But, you know, uh, you wash money in, you wash money out. That's the whole scam. Uh, and it has been that scam for a long, long time. Didn't start with Hillary Clinton. I think it probably started or got really bad, started getting really bad after the fall of the Soviet Union in the early 90s. You know, uh, things started getting more and more corrupt in USAID. You know, is there corruption in USAID between uh, European nations? Is there corruption with American money given to, uh, let's say, uh, NATO or whatever? Maybe. I don't know. But you don't see the kind of corruption you're seeing in Ukraine, let's say Guatemala, uh, unless it's a U.S. aid package for a developing nation. That's where the corruption is. That's where corrupt people are. Uh, let's just face it, in a, an enduring democracy, let's say like France, that it's far less likely that somebody in the leadership of the president's office or whatever 
um, is going to be shaking you down for a bribe or giving somebody a bribe. It's just a sophisticated, civilized uh, system of, uh, of international cooperation and foreign policy, and it just doesn't go down. In fact, of course, France and England and Germany don't need our money. They don't get foreign aid. They don't get gifts from America, let's say, like Guatemala does, which is just another Ukraine. What happens is these countries need money. They need not just aid and you know to defeat uh, Soviet soldiers on their soil trying to instill a, a, a civil war. Uh, they don't just need javelin missiles and, and military aid, lethal aid. They need aid for very basic things. For example, the rule of law. Um, America donates millions and millions of dollars to emerging countries like Ukraine so they can develop a working justice system. Now, forget about the idea that the American justice system is completely broken and we shouldn't be teaching anybody to uh, run their justice system like we reach ours. But rule of law is one of the ways these civil society organizations, these nonprofits that are set up in these emerging markets, emerging nations, they draw on multinational funding. EU gives money like this, European Union. Um, you know, the IMF gives money like the World Bank gives money like this. I mean, the, the list, I mean, in the individual European nations who are at play in, in Ukraine and the former Soviet Union also give a lot of money. Let's just say from the very beginning here that the Ukraine story is a story of three cities. It's a story of Kiev. It's a story of Washington. And it's a story of London. Uh, you know, if you read my book, you'll understand why I say that. But you know, a lot of the action and activity that's going on in Ukraine is at the behest of the British. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, they are hot on the oil and gas game, just like the Americans are. And uh, and George Soros, the American billionaire who who uh, gives billions in these emerging markets, trying to create pr progressive states, he has announced that he's going to give he's going to invest a billion dollars in Ukrainian oil and gas. So you know he's at play in Ukraine. And that whole grift of foreign aid in, foreign aid out, uh, back into the pockets of those who inspire and vote for the, the foreign aid, it's, it's an old game, you know? So we go from Hillary Clinton giving billions, taking hundreds of millions or whatever, dozens and dozens of millions, to, uh, you know, she leaves the scene as Secretary of State, you know, retires and gets ready to run for president. And who does Barack Obama make the head of Ukraine-U.S. relations, viceroy of Ukraine, let's say, czar of Ukraine-U.S. relations, but Joe Biden. And, you know, I was asked by a, a, a radio host, what, what was going through Joe Biden's mind? to think that Hunter Biden should be on the board of one of Ukraine's most corrupt com companies. Nobody in Ukraine, nobody, not preschoolers, not kindergartens, nobody in Ukraine is, is not familiar with the corruption at Burisma. Everybody there knows. Everybody in the American government that deals with Ukraine policy knows that Burisma is extremely corrupt. And yet, what makes Joe Biden think it's a good place for his son to land on the board of directors and to be dramatically overpaid. What was going through his mind, this, this talk show host asked me. 
And I said, imagine yourself, you're Joe Biden, you're lunch bucket Joe, you come from Scranton, PA, you're, you're riding the Acela train back and forth to your home in, Wash- in, in Washington and in, in, uh, Delaware. Uh, you've been in this government game for a long, long time, and you see Barack Obama buying a $16 million house. You see Hillary Clinton taking hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars from countries and people whose her policies were helpful to. Uh, think about Uranium One, uh, the $140 million that she got from people who benefited from the sale of America's Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian uranium assets. Think about that. You know, he's watching this all go down. Barack, multimillionaire. Hillary, multimillionaire. And the list of the multimillionaires, you know, orbiting around Washington is long, ladies and gentlemen. We hear about these people because they're elected officials. But there are a lot of people in Washington who got into this game, you know, with the idea of helping people, you know, Maybe they served in the Peace Corps and, and they thought, you know, I'm, I'm actually working with, you know, uh, important organizations, helping people who really need it. And, and then they get a little bit older and they get married and they got kids and the private schools that are necessary when you live in the Washington area because you can't send your children to a public school in D.C. Those are expensive. So you start getting into the profitable side of the aid business. You need a, a fleet of luxury cars for your family when your kids get to be old enough to drive. Not just one luxury car. It was enough for you to take your promotion or go to work for another Beltway Bandit working in the foreign aid arena so that you can finally afford your first Mercedes 600 class, right? But now your kids need Lexuses, or is that Lexi, right? When I was in Ukraine uh, filming my, my, my documentary, I had a long talk with a a member of parliament uh, who was also a very successful businessman, an oligarch, you might say. And he called these people grant eaters. He said, you Americans say you're giving us $3 billion in aid, but half of that money stays in America with the organizations that you pick, that you like, uh, to implement the aid. So half of it stays in Washington as overhead and fixed profits. Right? The other half goes to Ukraine, and it only goes to the people that you like, not necessarily to something that's good for the nation. It's good for a small organization that the American government helped fund, for example. The president of Ukraine can't decide whether or not some of that American money goes to NABU, the uh, quasi-governmental anti-corruption organization, or, or whether that, some of that money goes to ANTAC this anti-corruption youth organization that was so helpful in the uh, interference, uh, Ukraine's interference in American elections, those monies are earmarked. They must go to them. So the American government may say they were giving a billion dollars in Ukraine aid, but frankly, ladies and gentlemen, a lot of it goes in the pockets of Americans. So the, the, the grant game, the aid game is already corrupt, not, not corrupt. It's let's say, It's deceiving from the beginning. So if you give a billion dollars to Ukraine, cut that in half. Half of that stays in America, right, with the grant eaters, the people who organize this stuff, who don't work with the government, who make tremendous amounts of money implementing USAID, U.S. Agency for International Development Aid, for example. So it gets cut in half immediately. Then the rest of it goes to Ukraine. Let's say, for example, we all know that that when when, uh, Joe Biden – was appointed czar or you know viceroy of Ukraine by Barack Obama after the Maidan massacre on February 20th, 2014. 
uh, he began talking about bringing over and eventually did bring over $3 billion in loan guarantees, not low interest, loan guarantees from the United States government for the oil and gas sector to help Ukraine's oil and gas sector uh, become more efficient, become more market-oriented so that it could displace some of the influence of Russian gas in the region. Three billion bucks, right? So, of course, uh, according to my friend in Ukraine, you you, you got to take 40 to 50% of that right off the top because it goes into the mouths uh, and pockets of the grant eaters uh, who are all based in Washington with Beltway offices, right? The other half goes to Russia. I'm sorry, goes to Ukraine, probably to Russia too, eventually. Uh, and that money, let's say it's $1.5 billion, is divvied up among organizations that are oftentimes selected by the American government. And what is the largest, which company is the largest natural gas company in Ukraine? Let me think for a minute. That's right, Burisma Holdings. So Hunter Biden is on the board of directors making millions of dollars at Burisma Holdings, and his father is delivering billions of dollars in aid that will flow into the company where his son is on the board. Corrupt enough for you? It should be. I know that it probably isn't, but it should be. <laughs> honestly, ladies and gentlemen, honestly, it gets much worse than that. I believe that Hunter Biden and his buddy Devin Archer uh, helped the oligarch who uh, owns the uh, uh, the Burisma Holdings uh, you know, Energy Group. They helped him stay off the sanctions list. Because right after the, uh, the, the, the Maidan massacre brought about the coup, uh, coup d'etat of the president, the, uh, the, the democratically elected president there, who was not a favorite of the United States or the European Union and had just recently turned his back on the West and leaned into uh, Russia and Vladimir Putin, uh, he was thrown out of office by a violent protest that went on for months on the central square of Kiev. Immediately after that, Joe Biden is made uh, viceroy, and with you know within days of the massacre, he receives a visit late in the day from Devin Archer, his son's very dear friend and business partner. Key point: his son's business partner comes to visit him at the White House, and he's there. For hours into the evening. And a couple days later, Devin Archer joins the board of Burisma. Coincidental, I'm sure. And a little bit after that, uh, Joe Biden comes to Ukraine to talk about energy billions. A coincidence, I'm sure. And then a few days after that, his son, Hunter Biden, joins the board of Burisma. But what else is going on behind the scenes is that their boss, Lachevsky, is left off the U.S. sanctions list that was put together in 2014. And his gas holdings in Crimea, which was then, of course, Russian-controlled after their invasion, his gas holdings get a waiver under the, uh, the sanctions. Huh. Uh, do you think that those meetings with Biden – and the meetings that happened with the Secretary of State's office and the phone calls that surely happened and weren't reported, do you think that they had anything at all with keeping Zlachevsky off the U.S. sanctions list? By the way, Zlachevsky, who was a pro, uh, who was a, a favorite of the overthrown president, 
uh, just like the rest of the oligarchs who were favored by that president, all went on the uh, sanctions list, and Zlachevsky didn't. I'm sure it was just coincidental that the son of the American vice president and the best friend of the son of the American secretary of state were on the board of directors of his company, and they did nothing, right? They did nothing to keep him off the sanctions list. I was born at night, but it was not last night. The same thing goes with the uh, kind of sudden flurry of contact between uh, between Vice President Biden and President Petro Poroshenko uh, in uh, 2016. Because in early 2016, remember, these people are talking about how the prosecutor in Ukraine was corrupt and, and Joe Biden was the hero pushing him out. If you don't fire that guy, you're not getting a billion dollars that's supposed to go to the company that my son works for. It's not what it seems, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Biden talks about how Victor Shokin, the prosecutor who was looking into Burisma and was getting too close to his son, he talks about him like he was some pariah, that the international community were all clamoring to have him fired. There were three organizations uh, calling for Shokin to be fired. The first was the United States, the United States Embassy and United States Embassy employees and the vice president himself. They were calling for his removal. And then came the IMF and European Union. The International Monetary Fund and the European Union are guided in a lot of ways by their relationship with the United States. And oftentimes, I've seen it myself, I've worked on these projects myself, the IMF, the World Bank, and the United States sing from the same sheet of music intentionally. The United States will encourage the resonance of a message coming from their own diplomats. Please, our ambassador, Gregory Pyatt, is going to be calling for the resignation of uh, Victor Shokin as general prosecutor. We need your support on this. Please put out a statement. The European Union put out a statement. Uh, members of the European Union do as we say. You, you will see these multinational groups respond well to the United States when they muscle them like that because they rely so much on the United States. Uh, calling for the, uh, for the firing of a prosecutor in Ukraine is easy. Uh, they get fired on an annual basis. Uh, the United States is tired of Shokin. I don't care if they're tired. I don't have anything. I don't know Shokin anything. I'm going to go ahead and call for his ouster as well. Besides, next week I have to go see the ambassador, uh, you know, for something else. And I really don't want him bothering me about this. Let's put this statement out. So there is what I believe is an orchestrated call for Shokin's uh, removal. Because he's investigating Vice President Joe Biden's son's company. People say Joe Biden's son, Hunter, joined uh, Burisma after the uh, investigation had uh, was, already, uh, was already happening. It's true. There were multiple, according to Shokin, upwards of five investigations of Burisma going on, and one at the British Serious Fraud Office. So they're, you know, they're right. They wasn't being investigated because of Hunter, but Hunter jumped into the water. So he got into the investigation as well. But here's the interesting part. In early January, 
Well, actually, let's go back a bit. United States started calling for Shulkin's resignation in late summer of 2015, right? Right about the time when uh, the investigation started getting a little too close to Hunter Biden. So in uh, November of 2017, an organization called ANTAC, an anti-corruption organization that the United States Embassy and George Soros founded, it's a non-government organization that gets all its money from the U.S. and from the, probably the European Union, but also Soros. These young people running ANTAC started organizing protests outside of Shulkin's office. It went on for weeks, weeks. Every evening they would be there and protesting, you know, he must be fired. He must be removed. He must be fired. It was rather surprising to people I know in Ukraine to see the vehemence with which people were calling for his uh, his uh, removal. Shulkin, as far as and most people can tell, was no worse or no better than anybody else who had held the general, uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, general prosecutor's title. But they were outside of his office in November, October, November, screaming for him to be fired in resonance with the United States Embassy's call for him to be fired right, right around the same time. And then came the IMF and then came the European Union and uh, right about that time, somebody, a sniper, shot through the office window of uh, Victor Shulkin. Uh, luckily, the windows were bulletproof. He didn't get killed, but they tried to kill him with a rifle shot through his window. Now, I don't know much about the mafia or criminals. I am Italian, so I think I'm supposed to have some of this knowledge in my genes, right? But I've never heard of an investigator... Someone trying to kill an investigator because he wasn't investigating enough. It's ironic, isn't it? If you believe Shulkin, he was also poisoned in the midst of all of this. Shot at, poisoned for not investigating. Not bloody likely. And then in January of, uh, of 2016, just a few months after the United States initiated these protests outside of his office, oh no, we had nothing to do with it. Our fingerprints aren't on it. We didn't do it. We don't, that, that's an independent organization. Bull, the United States Embassy there, funds it. They meet with them on a regular basis. Their money is dependent upon their agenda, matching the strategy of the United States government, Period. Don't believe anything else you say. You hear uh, uh, Anabu, the organization uh, uh, that was also uh, pushing for uh, Shokin's ouster, and Antac, the one that was organizing youth protests out in front of his office. I don't think somebody from the United States, you know, shot at him. Uh, but let me tell you something. I believe uh, that certainly Shokin was investigating robustly. Barisma, And in fact, in January 2016, he confiscated this guy's property in Ukraine. If you're not investigating, if you're corrupt and you're just not moving on an investigation, you don't have the paperwork done and everything, all the investigations done to go ahead and snatch the guy's property. When I say property, I mean mansions, limos, Rolls Royces, gas wells. Millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of value snatched from the oligarch who had run away with the previous president who somehow wasn't picked up on the U.S. sanctions list. All of his property's gone. Within days, I think almost within hours, um, uh, uh, 
uh, Joe Biden, the vice president, called Petro Poroshenko, the president of Ukraine, and said, why is he still there? Why is uh, uh, Prosecutor Shulkin still in, uh, in his position? Immediately after, now you're going to tell me it was a coincidence. I know. Sure, it's a coincidence. Had nothing to do with the fact that the vice president's son was on the board and knew that their gas wells had been confiscated. Nothing to do with that, I'm sure. The visits from Devin Archer over at the, over at the Secretary of State's office, nothing to do with anything, right? Uh, Hunter Biden's visits to the Secretary of State's office, nothing at all. Right? It's just coincidence. He's popping by to go say hi to Uncle John Kerry because we're so close, our families. Crap. So one by one by one, uh, while, while you know Biden has had it, he's tried to get his son's uh, company's uh, prosecutor tossed out. It wasn't it met with all kinds of problems. So he calls and then he calls again and then he calls again. And then one day, and he says, why isn't he gone? Well, he's submitted his resignation. Why isn't he gone? Well, you know, the next step in the process, right? One by one, he calls over and over again the president of of Ukraine to ask about the firing of one man. One man. Oh, the international outcry orchestrated by the United States government through its embassy in Ukraine, through the tutelage of Joe Biden, whose son is on the board. Right? But at the end of it all, Shulkin has resigned. He's given his resignation to the president, and he still shows up to work because, you know, he's being paid. So one day he's seen in his office when he has already submitted his resignation, and within hours, Joe Biden calls again. Calls to talk about corruption, according to the readout of the telephone call. If he's calling to talk about corruption, <laughs> their number one corruption prosecutor Right. Seen in his office, it's reported publicly. And then suddenly the president gets a call. I'm imagining this, but I'm just going to say it. Petro, why is this Shulkin guy still in his office? Well, Mr. Vice President, uh, the parliament has to actually approve his resignation for him to actually be removed from office. Well, let's get that done. Ladies and gentlemen, Joe Biden is corrupt. Ladies and gentlemen, he's corrupt and his son is involved. Ladies and gentlemen, his son is involved as well as his friends. People talk about how Christopher Hines, the son of John Kerry, the Secretary of State, emailed the, the State Department and said, I don't know what Joe and what, what I'm sorry, what Hunter and Devin are doing, but they joined the board and I don't know why they did. I really want nothing to do with it. I have no investment in this. I'm leaving. You know, even. Even uh, Pam, Bond, uh, Pam Bondi said, you know, even Christopher Hines couldn't take it. He, he, he thought it was unusual. He sent an email, an email, by the way, that was given voluntarily to the media. It wasn't through a Freedom of Information Act request. It was given to the media, right? Uh, unfortunately... Uh, the fact march goes that while he said he was going to resign, he stayed in partnership with Hunter Biden and Devin Archer for a year. During that year, Hunter made $83,000 a month and Devin made $83,000 a month. So that's almost, that's one point, 
it's almost $2 million in a year that went into the partnership where Christopher Steele, son, a stepson of the Secretary of State, John Kerry, was also still a member. Oh, so upset about his partners bringing in that money. I can promise you uh, that in that year's time, the money from Burisma somehow or another benefited Christopher Christopher Steele, <laughs> Christopher uh, Hines, the son of John Kerry. If you think it didn't, my, I know I know as much as you do about it. Maybe I'm speculating, but uh, some if you're a member of a partnership and it's two million dollars comes in from a client that you didn't like, you better prove that you didn't take the money, or you took it. And I think Christopher Hines needs to prove himself. I also think that it's very obvious that Hunter Biden and Devin Archer were lobbying without being registered with FARA. They violated federal law. They committed felonies. Paul Manafort is in prison for this right now, ladies and gentlemen. And he never lobbied anybody directly. Not only did Hunter and Devin lobby directly, they lobbied cabinet officers. This is the most flagrant violation of the Foreign Agents Registration Act that the Department of Justice has ever seen. Pam Bondi didn't talk about this. I guess it's because some of my information is speculation. I don't know what happened in those telephone calls. They gave very general readouts, not like the president's transcript in his call with uh, the president of Ukraine. It's a summary that's put out as happy news that says, oh, the vice president talked to Petro Poroshenko today about the Yankees. It's very general stuff. And also we see that Hunter Biden was in visiting with the, you know, with uh, cabinet uh, officials, right? Uh, but we don't know what they talked about. It needs to be investigated. Remember, the Russia investigation started because of a barroom conversation about how the Russians may have Hillary's emails between George Papadopoulos and an Australian diplomat. Remember that. The Russia investigations started over barroom gossip. And we cannot have an investigation of Hunter Biden, Devin Archer, Joe Biden, and the rest of them when there is chapter and verse enough for the predicate of another crossfire hurricane. We can't have it. Why can't we have it? Because they're in charge. The Washington elite control our lives. And you will never see the investigation of Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, Devin Archer. You won't. And God damn it, ladies and gentlemen, that tells me our justice system is absolutely broken. I've got more to talk to you about after this, these messages here on Still Standing with Michael Caputo. Remember, stillstandingpodcast.com. Still Standing. Still Standing will be right back with Michael Caputo. Welcome back to Still Standing. I'm Michael Caputo. Thanks a lot for sticking around um, uh, and listening. It's really important to me. I, I do this on a regular basis. Now back to doing it weekly. I put a lot of thought into it. And uh, I, with the idea that you're spending your time in your car or working out with your headphones on or whatever it takes, and you're listening to my podcast, I want you to know that I truly appreciate it. I, I appreciate the support we get from uh, uh, Patreon, people who go to patreon.com and look up Still Standing with Michael Caputo, you have the, uh, the uh, opportunity to donate. 
Uh, people who donate to us, I consider them executive producers of our uh, of our little podcast. People like executive producer Brent Sheehan and Harrison Stockton. Brent and Harrison, welcome aboard. Thank you very much. Uh, Brent and Harrison have joined John Seifert, Henry Wotazic, Susan Havey, Sonia Carlin, Thomas Fulton, Samantha Lynn, Brian Pazdurski, Susan Stevens, Bra- uh, Jack Bromwich, Julie, Rachel, uh, Jordan Gostomsky, Patty Freeling, Bill Grant, Mark Berry, my old buddy Mark, Gary Stokes, Scott McRae, Catherine Barzicki, Breeze Lover, <laughs> thanks Breeze, and uh, Frank Butry. Thank you guys very much. It means a lot to me that you support us. Even just a couple of bucks is, as you know, really helpful because it, it all adds up and it helps us pay for the costs of this. There's associated costs. And my producer, Sean Dwyer, keeps it moving, which I really appreciate. But here on stillstanding.com, we talk about issues of the day. And boy, oh boy, I just saw one. We talked about uh, Pam Bondi's presentation, how I think she left some things on the table, but she can't speculate, but there is enough evidence for a predicate uh, for an investigation of the Biden mess. Uh, but in addition to that, I believe uh, that there is enough evidence that uh, that the Ukraine government under the previous president intentionally uh, intentionally interfered in our elections with the help of Alexandra Chalupa, an advisor, a paid advisor to the Democratic National Committee and to the Hillary campaign, uh, as well as other. Uh, she was working with the United, with the Ukrainian embassy in Washington, digging up dirt on Trump and his team, and then handing that off to the political powers that be in the Democratic Party, including Hillary Clinton. And of course, we have the Black Ledger that was put together by uh, the previous president, Petro Poroshenko's minion in parliament, uh, Sergei Leshenko. Leshenko put together a false document, compromat, we call it, fake uh, damning information, which is later proved to be false, but ends up hurting people in, when it's first announced. In fact, that took out Paul Manafort completely from the campaign. I believe that Ukraine uh, definitely uh, meddled in America's elections, worked directly with the Democrats to do it. Um but Alexandra Chalupa admitted it in a political article in January of, of uh, 2017. Admitted it. Bragged about it. Seemed to think that she had done something great. It wasn't until after that that we realized that the way they were going to get uh, the Trump people was Russia collusion, right? Alexandra had talked about Ukraine collusion on the record and admitted it had happened and seemed to be proud that she had encouraged the Ukrainian government to interfere in America's 2016 elections. And then after she realized that there was investigations into, into Russians uh, meddling uh, along with alongside Trump people, she shut her mouth. She definitely needs to be investigated. There's no question in my mind she needs to be investigated. As well as on the Ukrainian side, uh, the Ukrainians should be investigating uh, Leshenko, Nabu, Antak, all these people who were working with the U.S. Embassy in Kiev to provide information and tactics and strategy to defeat Donald Trump. It's a fact. That's why the U.S. Embassy in Kiev is uh, blocking Ukraine from investigating any of this. They, I've heard from friends of mine in the Ukrainian government. They have been told, don't you dare. 
They know that the president and the White House wants this. They know that the president is in charge. But right now, the American embassy in Kiev is a rogue organization. Now, it's been rogue for a while, but they they basically, like Guatemala, they, they run the place. They don't really listen to what comes from Washington. And if you want their help, uh, you better do what they say. And don't make a stink about it because they don't want their boss in Washington, Donald Trump, to know that they're flouting his wishes. The embassy is there at the behest of the president of the United States. The ambassador is there at the pleasure of the president of the United States. Marie Ivanovich was coordinating this stuff. Trump relieved her of her duties, recalled her, as they say. It's a fact. But we hear now that there is a book that's coming out from John Bolton. And in that book, John Bolton says that the president told him that the military aid was tied directly to the investigations. Never mind, of course, that the president can do run foreign policy as he wishes. We know that Ambassador John Bolton disagreed with the president on many things. I frankly don't know why the president appointed Bolton. I, I know John Bolton. He probably doesn't remember me. I've always... You know, giving him respect because he's a really bright man. He's also quite wealthy. But, you know, Bolton disagreed with the president on many things, not on North Korea. Uh, the North Korea situation was something where the president and Bolton uh, were in, uh, in, they were copacetic. But when it came to many other things, Bolton wanted war. The president did not. Bolton, the president wants troops out of the Middle East. Bolton does not. And in the end, it ended up with an address, a, a disagreement the president couldn't get past, and he fired Bolton. It's not unusual. Not a black mark on Bolton at all, really. It was kind of ignominious. I don't think the president called him in and said, we love you, but we need to move in another direction. I don't think he did it on Twitter either, but it wasn't a pleasant, it was kind of an unpleasant surprise to Bolton. But now Bolton has a book where he allegedly says this. First of all, people say, this leak is incorrect. You know, this is going to turn out to be nothing. Uh, the New York Times has been wrong on so many things, in the, especially these book uh, releases that come out, uh, that we're going to find out that Bolton didn't say anything like that at all. Look, uh, the New York Times reporters did not see the book. They did not see the pages. They were read the passages over the phone. But the thing is, one of those reporters is Maggie Haberman. Maggie Haberman... Many people on the Trump side, Trump team don't like her. I, I don't have a problem with her. I've known her for a lot longer than anybody in the Trump team has. She's a New York reporter, and I'm a New York political consultant, right? If Maggie Haberman's in there, they're going to have to have a certain modicum of proof that this was in the book. So I'm not going to poo-poo this story and say it's going to turn out to be false because Maggie's in it. If it was somebody else, maybe. But Maggie, no. I don't think so. And I know people who are hearing this that don't like Maggie because she beats up on the president a lot. Um, well, I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to uh, upset you, but uh, Maggie Haberman, I've known for you know a long time, uh, 11, 12 years. I remember being texting with Maggie when she was in labor. Uh, uh, not about Trump. It was a long time ago, 11 years ago. But uh, So I would not bet that the story is wrong. What I would bet is that Ambassador Bolton is trying to sell some books. That's what I would bet. A Bolton has an attitude problem. 
Um, he is – he doesn't like people disagreeing with him. He has a temper, a terrible temper. And he also is devious. He likes getting revenge. Now, all of that makes him no different than anybody else in Washington. But you step on John Bolton's toes, you're going to get your toes stepped on at some point in time, even if you're president of the United States. And if John Bolton's trying to make some money on something, he is going to maximize it. Not unusual, right? I can tell you, I believe that John Bolton, whether he leaked it or not, John Bolton is writing this as hard as he can. His book is already number one on Amazon. John Bolton doesn't need millions of dollars, but have you ever met a millionaire who thinks that he couldn't use a couple more million? You never, you never met one of those guys. John Bolton is looking to make some dough. John Bolton was quite famous for always wanting to make dough. And, uh, you know, whether it was signing on of a sponsor of this or a name on that or giving speeches around the country where he would say about anything. Uh, he was, he was in, he's in the money-making mood. And let me tell you something. Uh, so is just about everybody else in Washington. So I'm not sitting here to condemn John Bolton, but I am telling you that I believe that John Bolton is behind this. I believe that John Bolton wrote a crappy book about the president. I believe that he's maximizing its profitability by playing along with this leak, whether it was him doing the leak or not. I believe that. I actually don't think the book's even done yet. But uh, I can tell you, John Bolton did this. Um, and when the president hired John Bolton, this was always going to be the way, the way that it was going to end. Fred Flights, who was John Bolton's chief of staff twice in the government and a good friend, is calling upon John Bolton to uh, recall his book. I think that's an honorable request. Recall the book, Ambassador. Recall it. But he never will. <laughs> he won't because it's money. It's real money. And what John Bolton has to do now is just survive the beating he's going to get from Trump and his supporters. And he'll survive it. There are plenty of neocons out there that will embrace him uh, for going rogue on the president. It's, of course, dishonorable. This is a black mark on Ambassador Bolton's career. And he will forever wear this stink. Let me repeat that. <laughs> He's going to forever wear this stink. And if, you know, I don't think John Bolton really cares much about his legacy. He couldn't care about his legacy if he's releasing a book like this during the first term of the president of the United States. He could have waited until after the 2020 election. He could have waited until after impeachment. But he might have lost, you know, $350,000. So sorry. I'm really disappointed in Bolton. I know he doesn't care what people like me think. He doesn't care what you think. He's making his money. He's had his fun. And he's jumping right back into the nonprofit sector where he'll continue to make money. Ladies and gentlemen, John Bolton's life won't be interrupted one hiccup because of this. Not one. But I can promise you this. This whole play, this whole disruption of the Senate trial, this whole thing is John Bolton. It's John Bolton. And uh, anybody who didn't expect it from him did not know anything about him. That's a fact. 
I've got friends like Bolton all over the place. You know, I wouldn't call them good friends. People you can't trust. You know, you're going to tell them things in confidence and they're going to tell other people. And it wasn't like that was an unknown, uh, you know, Bolton characteristic. Everybody knew it. So this was always going to end this way. And here we are. He took a swipe at the president right at the most painful moment. One shot and got him. I don't know that we're going to end up having to read about John Bolton more during this trial. In my opinion, this trial should be over this week. I thought it'd be over on Wednesday, but then the Bolton game came. See, this is the kind of rinse and repeat escalation strategy that Democrats have, just like with the Russia investigation, just like Kavanaugh, and now with impeachment. They, they release a little bobble of information that is overblown and explained as something that's more damaging to the president than it really is. And when those three days of media cycles, media coverage wear out, they drop another little gem. Remember Lev Parnas? Because most people don't. That was so three days ago. Parnas was never going to be the reason that the Senate decided to have witnesses. But John Bolton, hmm, that's an escalation strategy. And if they don't do it with Bolton, then there will be another gem dropped. This is the Democrats' recurring kind of escalation strategy. Rinse and repeat over and over. John Bolton played right into the leftist's hands. Nobody on the left is ever going to like John Bolton. I don't think he is the least bit uh, concerned about what the left thinks of him. I don't think he's interested in becoming their friend, but if he can get a little uh, Me Too chorus, a little chorus out of the background from the lefties, and that makes him another half a million dollars on his book, yeah, <laughs> he'll wear a red tie for you. <laughs> it's just the way John Bolton is, ladies and gentlemen. Sorry about that. You know, and I like the guy. You know, he could have disagreed with the president and uh, acted the way that he did and left in a huff and bitched about him in the behind closed doors for the last several months if he had not just stabbed the president of the United States in the back. Stabbed him in the back. Put a knife between the president's shoulder blades. If he hadn't done that, I might say, okay, whatever. It's just John Bolton. But ladies and gentlemen, in my opinion, this must change John Bolton's legacy in life and death. This is how we're going to remember, remember him. As someone who served at the pleasure of a president, was asked to leave when his time was up, and then put a sword right between his shoulder blades to try to kill him through impeachment. That's John Bolton, ladies and gentlemen. That's how his Wikipedia page should read. Don't ever forget what kind of man John Bolton is. Don't you forget. Forget.